0: Dialogue. A journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue.
1: Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal.
0: Dialogue.
2: Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary. Of dialogue.
1: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Our podcast today features Dr. Patrick Q. Mason, who will be well known to many of our listeners Patrick is Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Claremont Graduate University and also the Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont. He's a past Chair of the Board of Directors of Dialogue Foundation and is currently President of the Mormon History Association. Patrick's topic today is Religion, Violence, and Peace – A Latter-day Saint View. This will be a terrific preview of some of the thoughts that will be contained in his forthcoming book, The Battles of Zion, Mormonism and Violence, to be published by Cambridge University Press. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope you will become a regular subscriber on iTunes. We also hope you'll subscribe to either the print or digital versions of Dialogue, A Journal of Mormon Thought. We appreciate any financial support you can give as we're dependent on the contributions of our readers and listeners. You can donate online at DialogueJournal.com. The following presentation by Patrick Mason was given to a gathering of the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California, on January 19, 2018. Tonight's speaker reminds me of a new program that is on TV, uh, on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it. It's David Letterman's program. And the title of the program is, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction.
0: <laughs>
1: and his first guest was Barack Obama. Uh, my next guest certainly needs no introduction. Most of you know Patrick. But I'll say a few words anyway, just for the, for the recording. Patrick followed Richard Bushman as the Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University. And those were large shoes to fill, but Patrick has succeeded remarkably. Not only does he chair of the Mormon Studies program, but he's also become the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at CTU. So he has accomplished things both within the, the, the LDS structure and within the university as a whole. He's a graduate of BYU and the University of Notre Dame, where he received a PhD in history. He serves as president of the Mormon History Association. He's the past chair of the Dialogue Foundation Board, and he's often featured in newspaper articles about Mormonism. Patrick has written several books, including Planted, Belief and Belonging in An Age of Doubt, and The Mormon Menace, Violence and Anti-Mormonism in the Postbellum South. The former published by Deseret Book, the latter by Oxford University Press, and he's spoken to us previously on both of those books, and I found his presentations fascinating. He's recently completed a book manuscript entitled The Battles of Zion, Mormonism and Violence, and he's also in the final stages of another book, co-authored with David (coughs) Pulsifer, tentatively titled Weapons of Peace, A Mormon Theology of Nonviolence. So Patrick is uniquely well qualified to speak to us about tonight's topic, religion, violence, and peace. And I'll turn the podium over to him. Thanks.
3: Well, it's great to be here tonight. Thanks, everybody, for, for coming and uh, figuring out this new place. great to see lots of friends. Some that I've seen recently, and uh, some that it's been a little while since I've seen. So, so thanks everybody for for coming out. Uh, Morris mentioned, so let me just say one thing before I dive into my presentation. He mentioned the conference at Claremont on March 9th and 10th. So, I just want to give you a a couple details about this uh, because I think a lot of you will be interested in this. Uh, We are in the early stages of, of trying to establish what we're calling the Center for Global Mormon Studies. Uh, at CGU in which we would, uh, it would become a hub for studying Mormonism all around the world. And so this conference is going to be dedicated to that theme of global Mormon studies. Uh, so it'll be Friday, March 9th, and Saturday, um, uh, March 10th. Uh, the keynote speaker on Friday night will be Elder Patrick Kieran uh, from the presidency of the 70. Uh, many of you know he, he's British himself. He presided over the Europe area. Uh, when the church was uh, heavily involved in addressing the refugee crisis of people coming from the Middle East, Syria, and Iraq, and other places like that, and so, and Elder Karen gave a terrific general conference talk about refugees, and so he's going to be speaking that night about refugees, about the church's humanitarian efforts, uh, and and what that means for global Mormonism. So, so he, he's the keynote speaker on March 9th, but we have a, a, a great cast of other scholars speaking. Uh, on the afternoon of March 9th and then the morning and afternoon of of March 10th uh, including a number of uh, international scholars as well so uh, we're gonna have, uh, we've got some preliminary uh, information up on our website at at Claremont Graduate University, we'll we'll be getting more information up soon so that's just FYI. Okay so launching in here, so speaking of the globe and and, and, uh, as, as we think globally obviously there are a lot of challenges that we face all around the world, uh, whether you're thinking about global warming, uh, poverty and inequality, uh, political fracture, uh, human trafficking. you know, There's any number of challenges that, that we face. Um, but tonight, I'm going to talk about, uh, about the topic of, of religion and violence and, and the, the relationship of, of those two things, and then what we might be able to do to, to transform those violent dynamics into peaceful uh, dynamics. So uh, so we're going to do, I'm going to be doing kind of a, uh, going to be wearing two hats tonight, uh, partly as a historian and partly as a, uh, a, a peace study scholar, I, I guess three hats, because then also a little bit of theology thrown in uh, at the very end, too, so... Um, uh, we'll 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 see how this goes. Uh, and as Morris said, this this comes out of two books that uh, that I've been writing or working on recently. One on Mormonism and violence, and that's a a, a short little cheery book uh, <laughs> uh, 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 that uh, uh, will give you nightmares. Uh, so don't read it right before you go to bed. Uh, uh, that that should come out I think sometime this next year. Uh, and then uh, I'm I'm uh, working with uh, this uh, colleague of mine, David Pulsifer, up at BYU-Idaho uh, to finish this book that we've been working on for a few years now on Mormonism and peace, and really trying to think theologically about what does Mormonism have, have to say about peace. So you'll get a little bit of a sneak preview of both of those uh, books tonight. but. Um, Morris wanted me to talk not just about Mormonism, but to kind of a, a broader context as well. So you're going to get some of that as well. I teach a, a seminar uh, at Claremont Graduate University called Religion and Violence and Peace. So you're going to get a little bit of that. So, so we'll, we'll see how, how this all uh, works tonight. Normally, when, when I speak as a historian, my, my job and, uh, is, is to, to not take a, a, a strong position or not take sides. I mean, we, we try to be... Uh, as objective as possible. Uh, I'll, I'll do that somewhat tonight, but, but by the end, you'll see I, I will be taking a position because I think on, on matters of life and death, violence and peace, uh, on matters of ethics, I, I think we do have to take positions and do have to take sides. Um, and so I will be doing that sort of towards the end. All right, so let's, let's uh, begin. So Deuteronomy chapter 30, this uh, comes from Moses' final charge to the Israelites Uh, before they enter into the promised land. And Moses said this, he says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Now, religion, of course, is always about interpretation uh, we always select which divine commands we prioritize. We don't actually keep all the commandments that are given in the Bible, right? There's a lot of them that, that we don't keep anymore. There's, there's, there's a lot of things that our modern church leaders have said that we don't do anymore or that we prioritize. So religion is always an act of, in, of interpretation. Uh, and, and we choose which, which parts we elevate and which parts we, uh, we pay less attention to. So I'm going to make the claim today that I believe that this verse, or at least the kind of core of this verse, is really key for the ethic that Jehovah was trying to instill among the Israelites and that I would argue is still binding today. And so, so the bottom line for me is that one of my assumptions that's going into my presentation today is that choose life, this idea that we have life and death before us, but that God tells us to choose life, that that should be a core element of whatever ethic we have as we approach uh, the children of God and what to do. Okay, But of course, not everybody does choose life. And we're confronted in the headlines practically every day uh, with the ways that religion is mobilized for purposes of violence and of death. Uh, in recent years, we've seen it in Syria, Iraq, Myanmar, in our own country. Uh, over the course of human history, you, there would be no society virtually that would be untouched by the scourge of violence, much of which has been either inspired by, justified by, influenced by religious beliefs or religious teachings. So no religion is immune, no society is immune. Uh, every religion, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, uh, the, the Mormonism, Uh, we're all implicated in this at some point uh, in our history so this has given fodder this record of religion and violence has given fodder to critics of religion Uh, people like Christopher Hitchens one of the famous so-called new atheists a few years ago he published a book God is Not Great How Religion Poisons Everything very subtle title (laughs) very subtle uh, and the second chapter of the book is equally subtle. Uh, the second chapter of the book is called Religion Kills. Hitchens concludes, he, he, throughout this chapter, he narrates the lengthy record of religion and violence from the Crusades all the way up to, to the present. And he concludes that religion is not only a menace to civilization, but in fact a threat to human survival. And so Hitchens and many people like him see religion as as really one of the the great problems that we have to solve because religion leads to violence. And it's not just atheists who make these kinds of claims. So in a best-selling book that came out a few years ago, Charles Kimball, Charles Kimball is an ordained Baptist minister. He was the dean of the Divinity School at Wake Forest uh, University. And Charles Kimball opened his book when religion becomes evil, by saying this, it is somewhat trite, but nevertheless sadly true, to say that more wars have been waged, more people killed, and these days, more evil perpetrated in the name of religion than by any other institutional force in human history. So the question is, is Kimball right? Hmm.
0: No.
3: No. Yeah, yes. Like <laughs> statistically, yes. Okay. Okay. Well, I if this was a class, we would talk about it. Okay, but um, uh, uh, but, uh, the fact is, so empirically, statistically, and we have good numbers on this. Empirically, Kimball is wrong, and he's wrong by a long shot. Uh he would be right if he were to change just one word here. If he were to change religion to the modern nation state. Okay? I mean, it's not even close. By the time you add up all of the deaths uh, perpetrated under Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, right? Uh, you know, other genocides perpetrated by the, the modern nation state, especially in the 20th century. Far and away. And and And, and those were all uh, for the most part, uh, those were secular uh, regimes. They were not strongly motivated by uh, religion. Okay? So em- empirically, Kimball's claim is wrong, but lots of people believe this. Lots of people who agree with this. Lots of people believe that religion is singularly violent, that re- religion is uh, singularly problematic. Okay? So, so even if it's a reductionistic... Yeah? Isn't
2: it an irrelevant question, though? the main question is why is evil waged or worse waged and, right. and religion is hijacked as a, as, a, as a way to structure the message but it's a hijack
3: I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, exactly, okay? And, so, so, you know, and, and some people would say, well, when, you know, when, when religion was in charge, uh, you know, back before the age of secularization, they just didn't have the, the weaponry that, that Stalin and Hitler had. You know, they didn't have the, the capability to, to kill on such a mass scale. I mean, so, so in some ways, I mean, these are semantic arguments, although they're not semantic because we're talking about tens of millions of people uh, who were killed. But it, it, nevertheless, it's certainly true that deep religious conviction has contributed significantly to the perpetuation of violence. So even if it's not number one on the list, um, the fact is that religion historically and contemporarily has a violence problem. Now at the same time, one of the problems with Hitchens and Kimball with their argument is they're overly reductionistic because they fail to acknowledge the other side of the coin, namely that religion is also, in deep religious conviction, is also frequently mobilized in the service of peace and justice and humanitarian outreach. And of course, those of us in this room know this deeply, okay? But consider this passage from Martin Luther King. We just had uh, Martin Luther King Day a few days ago. So consider this from, from arguably uh, his, his greatest uh, single thing that, that, that he wrote, from the Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And you'll recall that he was in jail in Birmingham. He was there trying to organize African-Americans for voting rights uh, and to defeat Jim Crow. And and he was responding because uh, a group of white ministers had written him and asked him to slow down, said that his tactics were too extreme, that he needed more patience, sort of just give it time and these things will, will work themselves out. And, and the, the sort of the, the nature of the letter is him writing back and saying, time doesn't solve anything. I mean, you're either moving forward or moving backward, and, and, and we have to work on these things and, and be proactive. Uh, it, it's a lot more brilliant than that. Uh, but, but this is what he says to, to the charge where they, they accuse him and the fellow civil rights workers of being extremists. He says, though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? Was not Martin Luther an extremist and Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson? So the question is not whether we will be extremists but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we, be. will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. Now, now we may or may, may not like the the language of extremism. I mean, it it, it may make us a little uncomfortable. But I think, regardless, King challenges us here to think about religion's capacity for peace, right? Uh, And that extremism, where people who sacrifice everything, give everything uh, to the the cause of religion, they do so not just uh, with with violence and the perpetration of violence at the end, But as often or not, uh, they they do so for love, for justice, another thing. Okay, so in the spirit of of Dr. King, tonight uh, I want to make two different propositions, and I'll talk about each of these sort of generally and then apply them to Mormonism. Uh, So these are kind of the the, the two main arguments I'm going to make tonight. Uh, So first of all, when it comes to questions of violence and peace, religious traditions are on the whole ambivalent. And then second, religious believers and non-believers who are committed to peace and justice must win the argument within each community or tradition and then in society more broadly. All right, so let me talk about each of these. And I say I'll talk about them kind of in general terms and then we'll talk about them as as they apply to Mormonism too. Okay, so I draw this idea of the ambivalence of the sacred from a scholar named Scott Appleby. He was actually my mentor uh, at the University of Notre Dame. He wrote this terrific book published in 2001, uh, actually before the 9-11 attacks, uh, became uh, relevant uh, quite quickly, uh, called The Ambivalence of the Sacred. And, and when, when he talks about ambivalence here, so sometimes uh, we uh, use the word ambivalence to, to, to mean a kind of shoulder shrugging or a kind of indifference. Towards something that's not the way he's using ambivalence. He's u- using it in, in the, the stricter sense of the term, meaning mixed feelings or contradictory ideas or, or kind of multiple trajectories. And the key here is that every religious tradition, whether we're talking about Christianity or, or even within that Catholicism, uh, the Southern Baptists, or, or Hinduism or, uh, or, or Buddhism or anything else. Every religious tradition is characterized by internal pluralism, meaning that there's a wide range of available options within that religion. Right? So, uh, so a wide range of texts and authorities and rituals and leaders and all that kind of stuff who don't all agree on everything. Sometimes they disagree about things. They go in different directions. So you have pluralism or diversity within every religious tradition, and 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 we know this. Okay. Um, now now the key here is that it, at any given time, all of these religious traditions are arguments. Uh, religions are not just a static set of truths that are the same forever and ever and ever, even though oftentimes their leaders and, and even believers will portray them as such, but religions change all the time and they change because people interpret them. They, they choose to elevate certain ideas uh, or diminish other ideas. And so religions are an ongoing argument. There's always a tug. There's a pull. There's a give and take within religions. Oftentimes this, this, this happens over the course of years and decades, so it's not noticeable uh, to, to, to people. But, but religions do change. And so what they do is they draw on all of these resources, this internal pluralism. I mean, you think about Christianity. Think about our religion, right? I mean, you think about the Bible, all of the many things that the Bible says. And at different times... People have reached in and retrieved and grabbed certain things within that, or different rituals, or different hist- historical traditions. And, and so because of that, over time, these traditions kind of shape, and they bend, and they mold, uh, and they look a little bit different differently over time. Okay? So because of this, there's a kind of ambivalence about this, uh, specifically regarding questions of war and peace. Uh, or violence and peace so let me give you a couple of examples uh, one from American history and one one from Mormon history okay so first of all uh, now two cases from Mississippi 1964 and these are sort of competing christianities different interpretations of Christianity in the exact same time and place same state same year uh, same religion all right so I want to talk about two different people one Fanny Lou Hamer some of you might remember Fannie Lou Hamer. So Fannie Lou Hamer was, uh, uh, was raised as a poor black sharecropper. Uh, one of many children uh, in her family, very, very poor, uh, living, in, um, living in Mississippi. She, uh, she eventually had a kind of political awakening started to organize other uh, African Americans in Mississippi for the vote eventually went to the Democratic National Convention in 1964, you, remi- you might remember this if you're old enough, Freedom Summer, uh, and along the way, as she went around Mississippi, organizing people to vote, uh, she endured multiple beatings, uh, she was imprisoned uh, several times, uh, and uh, sexually abused, uh, and other things like this, all uh, to, to build a society based on freedom, justice, and love. And Fannie Lou Hamer was motivated primarily by her Christianity. In fact, she said this, we have to realize just how grave the problem is in the United States today. And I think the sixth chapter of Ephesians, 11th and 12th verses, helps us to know what we're up against. It says, put on the whole armor of God, that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's what I think about when I think of my own work in the fight for freedom. She went on to say, uh, Christ was a revolutionary person out there where it was happening. That's what God is all about, and that's where I get my strength. So despite all of the beatings, despite being thrown in prison, despite all of the abuse that she endured, she was motivated first and foremost by her Christian faith. So Fannie Lou Hamer is one of these creative extremists that Martin Luther King was talking about. Now compare her and contrast her at the same time and place to Sam Bowers, also Mississippi, also Christian, 1964. Sam Bowers was the imperial wizard of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, led a four-year campaign of terror in which he orchestrated multiple murders, bombed several churches, and led to hundreds of beatings, assaults, bombings, and other things. He, uh, uh, but he was motivated by Christianity as well, and was quite explicit about it. In fact, in a Ku Klux Klan recruiting poster that he published and that they put up all over Mississippi to try and get new members, Sam Bowers said this about the Ku Klux Klan. Our members are Christians who are anxious to preserve not only their souls for all eternity, but who are militantly determined, God willing, to save their lives and the life of this nation in order that their descendants shall enjoy the same full God-given blessings of true liberty that we've been permitted to enjoy up to now. If you are a Christian, American, Anglo-Saxon who can understand the simple truth of this philosophy, you belong in the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi. We need your help right away. Get out your Bible and pray. So that was Sam Bower's recruiting pitch, okay, to his fellow Christians in Mississippi. I don't think Fannie Lou Hamer was signing up. Um, Sam Bowers also said this. People would say, well, what about all the violence, Sam? I mean, you know, I mean, uh, and, and he would have to deal with this even within uh, the Klan. People would say, well, what about these tactics? How do they square with Christianity? Well, this is, uh, Sam Bowers thought that all of the, the beatings and bombings and everything else uh, were perfectly compatible with Christianity. And this is how he explained it. He said, as Christians, we are disposed to kindness, generosity, affection, and humility in our dealings with others. As militants, we're disposed to use physical force against our enemies. How can we reconcile these two apparently contradictory philosophies? The answer, of course, is to purge malice, bitterness, and vengeance from our hearts. If it's necessary to eliminate someone, it should be done with no malice,
2: in complete
3: silence, and in the manner of a Christian act. Yeah? By bombing. He, he was uh, partly responsible for the bombing of, in Birmingham of the, the church where the four little girls were killed. Okay? But do it with no malice in your heart in the manner of a Christian act. Sam Bowers was a Christian too. They both claim to be Christian. How do we know which one is right? Okay? Let's take an example from our own history Missouri, 1838 competing Mormonisms. Earlier in that decade, as you, as you all know, uh, as trouble began in Jackson County in 1833, uh, and as uh, that the first time that the mobs assembled to drive uh, the saints out of Jackson County, uh, they responded without any kind of violence. They received significant violence. Uh, you remember Bishop Partridge, tarred and feathered and other kinds of things. But John Carrill... Uh, who was an early convert to the church and was an early church historian. But then eventually, by the time he wrote this book and published it in 1839, had left the church. Uh, It's actually one of our most valuable sources for early Mormon history, especially the Missouri conflicts. But John Carrill said, even after his disaffection, he said, up until this time, up until July 1833, the Mormons had not so much lifted a finger, even in their own defense. So tenacious were they, for the precepts of the gospel, turn the other cheek. So John Carrillo said, you know, the early saints were so committed to the gospel of the Sermon on the Mount that they would would, uh, turn the other cheek, not even lift a finger when the mobs attacked them in Jackson County. Of course, that changed by five years later when in June 1838, uh, Samson, Avard, and others organized the Danites uh, now many of you know that the Danites were organized as a kind of paramilitary organization. Their stated objective was to defend the community against dissenters and excommunicated members. But they were also, uh, they also functioned as a paramilitary force in the battles against non-Mormon militias. The Danites uh, had their own manifesto, so the mobs had manifestos, well the Danites had their own manifesto signed by Hiram Smith, and more than 80 others. And he was addressed to Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, John Whitmer, Lyman E. Johnson, William W. Phelps, uh, all of whom uh, were dissenting from the church at this point. And this, uh, this manifesto warned these men to depart or a more fatal calamity shall befall you. This caused these men to, to flee for their lives. Uh, the Danites warned of cutting the throats of anyone who betrayed them or of the prophet. And their actions and their rhetoric helped escalate. They, they were, of course, were not solely responsible, but they helped uh, escalate the election day violence in Gallatin in August 1838, which eventually sparked the what we know as the Missouri War, which led to Hans Mill, to the extermination order, and all the battles in October of 1838. The Danites were responsible for raiding and pillaging non-Mormon towns, Millport and Gallatin. Uh, now, of course, we, we know, and this is, this is well established, the violence that Latter-day Saints received in Missouri was, was far worse than anything that they gave out, far worse than anything that the Danites did. But Mormon violence and the Danites' rhetoric and the Danites' actions did contribute to escalating the situation. And some of the aggression was actually directed towards non-belligerents, both Mormon and non-Mormon. So as a result of this, uh, two apostles, Thomas Marsh and Orson Hyde, they were horrified by the violence. They were horrified by what they heard and saw from the Danites. And they signed an affidavit, affidavit um, outlining and condemning what they saw as an excessively militant spirit among the Latter-day Saints. Uh, they said this did not conform to their expectations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and For signing this affidavit, uh, which was used against the Latter-day Saints by the government, uh, Marsh and Hyde were excommunicated. Okay, usually in the church, we tell the story about Thomas Marsh being excommunicated over milk or something like that. He was excommunicated primarily because he opposed the violent activities of the Danites and other Mormon militants. Okay. And so we see, even in our own early history, within the space of only five years, we have a group of saints in Missouri who were so tenacious for the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, they wouldn't even lift a finger in their own self defense. And five years later, Uh, we have the Danites. Well, which is the real Mormonism? Which is the right way to interpret the religion? Is it to turn the other cheek? Or is it to organize and defend the community? Which is it? Alright, so this goes now to my second proposition. So I've in which I say religious believers and non-believers who are interested but I think if, if we're committed to peace and justice to these values we can't just sort of say well people are going to do what they're going to do but I think uh, we have a responsibility to try to win the argument internally All right. now what do I mean by winning the argument let me give a couple of examples from the Muslim community and, and uh, I know that a lot of times people are saying well why aren't Muslims speaking out against the violence and things like this let me tell you um, a couple of great stories. So, um, so this was uh, reported last year, or I guess in 2016, so a couple years ago now, in the New York Times. Uh, There's an article called Muslim Leaders Wage Theological Battle Stoking ISIS's Anger. Let me read uh, excerpt from this. As the military and political battle against the Islamic State escalates, Muslim Imams and scholars in the West are fighting on another front, through theology. Imam Suhaib Webb, a Muslim leader in uh, Washington, has held live monthly video chats to refute the religious claims of the Islamic State. Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, an American Muslim scholar based in Berkeley, California, has pleaded with Muslims not to be deceived by the stupid young boys of the Islamic State. Millions have watched excerpts from his sermon titled The Crisis of ISIS in which he wept as he asked God not to blame other Muslims for what these fools do amongst, amongst us. This is what hurts ISIS the most. It's Muslims speaking out, said Mubin Sheikh, a Canadian who once joined an extremist Islamic group and now advises governments on countering radicalization. Imam Webb, uh, that's, that's him, He said, it's an honor to be denounced by ISIS. I consider it one of the greatest accomplishments of my life. (laughs) All right? So these are Muslim leaders who are actively speaking out and trying to win the argument, not just say, well, I mean, there's ISIS and there's us, but but actually speaking out, trying to win the argument against uh, Islamic radicalism and violence done in the name of Islam. Another example... Uh, this is a former colleague of mine at Notre Dame, a guy named Ibrahim Musa, uh, who was uh, 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 trained in uh, madrasas in uh, India. And so he's he's launched a major uh, initiative to enrich uh, religious and scientific literacy among madrasa students in South Asia, in India and Pakistan. So he's going over and using Islamic texts trying to, to raise awareness and counter... Uh, the, the, the kinds of ideologies and teachings that, that lead to radicalization. And so uh, Musa says, graduates of madrasas are very influential in shaping the religious thinking, value, and practice of mainstream Muslims. All right? So the idea is to go in and teach the teachers. Right. If, if we can teach the imams, if we can teach the people who are going to be religious scholars... And if we can de-radicalize them or stop them from getting radicalized in the first place, then that's going it's it's, uh, to spread to the, to the rest of, of the religion and the community. Okay? So this is, this is an example of Muslims trying to win the argument within their own community. Okay, so what about, what about Mormonism? And now I'll, I'll, I'll focus for the last few minutes on our own tradition. Now, fortunately, uh, we, uh, we haven't been around long enough to have uh, had uh, crusades or a true a genocide uh, on our watch. Um, and as far as I know, there's no current cases where members of the LDS church are using their religion to justify mass murder or, or violence, at least not that I know of. But of course, historically, our hands are not clean. When you consider the Danites that we've talked about, when you consider the violence against Native Americans in Utah, which, uh, uh, which was tantamount to extermination. In fact, they used the language of extermination in settling Utah Valley. The Mountain Meadows Massacre, pictured here. Uh, teachings of blood atonement, uh, violence against dissenters and non-members, especially in the 1850s. All right, So our hands are not clean, historically. And even in contemporary Mormonism, we have challenges of guys like Dan Lafferty. Now, I'm sure uh, most of you are familiar with Dan Lafferty, but uh, Dan Lafferty, based on uh, his own interpretation of Mormon scripture, and then also what he believed to be divine revelation to his brother Ron, Dan Lafferty murdered his niece and sister-in-law in cold blood on July 24, 1984. And this is what he said about it. He says, it was like someone had taken me by the hand that day and led me comfortably through everything that happened. Ron had received a revelation from God that these lives were to be taken. I was the one who was supposed to do it. And if God wants something to be done, it will be done. You don't want to offend him by refusing to do his work. Now, Ron and Dan Lafferty were profiled in the book uh, Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer. Many of you probably know this. Uh, John Krakauer's book, this, this is the single best-selling title on Mormonism uh, in this century. Okay, it, it was published in the early 2000s. And far and away, it's the number one best-selling book on Mormonism. It's assigned in college classrooms. It was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, it's the number one source, probably may, maybe other than the Book of Mormon musical, uh, 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 for, for for people uh, you know uh, who, who are learning about Mormonism. And what they learn about Mormonism is uh, it's actually a better book, I think, than sometimes we, we, uh, uh, we we've given it credit for. But he uses Don, Don and Ram, Don, Dan and Ron uh, Lafferty as a as a kind of case study. And for, for Krakauer, the, the subtitle of the book is A Story of Violent Faith. And he says right up front, he says, I never set out to write a book about Mormonism. I was interested in religion and violence. Just so happened that Mormonism happened, was a great case study uh, for, for me to write about. And, uh, and so this is what he says in the introduction. It's it's a bit of a long quote, but it's, it's worth reading, because it sort of sets up the problem that I want to solve here in the next couple minutes. He says, there's a dark side to religious devotion that's too often ignored or denied. As a means of motivating, now that you're going to hear sort of Christopher Hitchens all over again, as a means of motivating people to be cruel or inhumane, as a means of inciting evil, to borrow the vocabulary of the devout, there may be no more potent force than religion. Extremism seems to be especially prevalent among those inclined by temperament or upbringing towards religious pursuits. Faith, and here's the key, Faith is the very antithesis of reason. Injudiciousness, a crucial component of spiritual devotion. And when religious fanaticism supplants ratiocination, all bets are suddenly off. Anything can happen, absolutely anything. Common sense is no match for the voice of God. Okay. I actually think that is a real challenge. I I think he throws down the gauntlet there for anybody who's in a revealed religion, and especially Mormonism, with our emphasis on revelation, on the Holy Spirit speaking to us. I think this is a real challenge. He's saying that common sense, logic, all the kinds of things, the decent things that we do day to day, that's all off the table when God talks to you directly. Right? and of course he, he talks a lot about First Nephi 4 and Nephi and, you know, and, and we have that right? so he's, he's saying revealed religion is dangerous because it doesn't play by any rules there's a time where God will talk and that just supersedes everything else so I, I think we have a theological challenge to, to answer this how do we answer this especially given our theology of personal revela- revelation do we have any way to say that for sure, Don, Dan Lafferty was wrong? Not just because we think murder is wrong, because we have cases in our scriptures where it doesn't seem very wrong, right? When God uh, commands it, so do we have any theological resources to respond to this? Okay. Now we have made. I'm, I'm going to come back to that question. I mean, so we we our position. And our actions have changed uh, since 1857, thankfully. We, uh, the church in 1889, uh, you may not know this, so we always talk about the manifesto that Wilford, Wilford Woodruff put out in 1890, ending polygamy, right? But just a few months before that, the First Presidency and the of the Twelve Apostles put out a, a, uh, a, another manifesto, another proclamation, in which they uh, it was a statement on blood atonement, actually in which they denounced the teaching of blood atonement. Uh, they, they said this church views the shedding of human blood with the utmost abhorrence. Um, they denied that the church was ever responsible for killing apostates. That wasn't exactly right, but uh, we'll give them a mulligan. And, um, uh, but but, but what they, the, the key is they say, we denounce as entirely untrue the allegation which has been made that our church favors or believes in the killing of persons who leave the church or apostatize from its doctrines. This is abhorrent to us in direct opposition to the fundamental principles of our creed. So beginning in 1889, the, the, the First Presidency says, any violence in the name of, of, of religion, right, even against apostates and so forth, they said it's in opposition to the fundamental principles of our creeds. Fast forward to, this is the side of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, where 150 years after our darkest day as a religion, uh, Elder, now President, Henry B. Eyring, went uh, to a service that was attended by descendants of both the perpetrators and the victims of that massacre. And this is what President Eyring said. The gospel of Jesus Christ that we espouse abhors the cold-blooded killing of men, women, and children. Indeed, it advocates peace and forgiveness. What was done here long ago by members of our church represents a terrible and inexcusable departure from Christian teaching and conduct. It's a 180-degree turn from what happened 150 years earlier. Uh, A few years ago, uh, now President Nelson gave a talk called Blessed Are the Peacemakers, in which he said that the duty of the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was to be peacemakers, that the Church had a duty to renounce war and proclaim peace, which is the revelation given in Section 98 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and that individuals should be personal peacemakers. Just a few years ago, the church put out an essay as part of the Gospel Topics Essays in which it came clean on the history of Mountain Meadows. This followed up on the Mountain Meadows Massacre book that the church had commissioned, uh, that the church historians had written and published in 2008. And so so the church has come a long ways, obviously, uh, from, from 1857 and from those times. Okay? but. I would say, so even all of this sort of historical reckoning and even this denunciation of violence, I think it still doesn't fundamentally solve the problem that Krakow raises, that what happens when the Holy Spirit tells you to do something and what if the Holy Spirit tells you to chop off somebody's head in an alley at night because you need to go get some plates. Okay? Uh, What do you do? Do we have any theological way to deal with that? So I'm going to close here uh, with what may be a controversial proposal, and you can feel free to argue with me at the end. I'm going to, I suggest that when it comes to matters of peace and violence within Mormonism, that we need to put a general ethic over and above the special case of personal revelation. In other words, that we need to make any revelation that comes on this topic uh, subservient to uh, a general ethic. And that the commandments, thou shalt not kill and renounce war and proclaim peace and choose life, that these are the ethical essentials, not electives that we can discard when we receive a special revelation. This means that we might even need to win the argument against the voice of the spirit that tells us otherwise. Well, how do you win an argument with the third member of the Godhead? (laughs) Without wanting to be flip, I'd suggest that we do so by appealing to the second member of the Godhead, who is, after all, the perfect image and revelation of the first member of the Godhead. So I'm going to close with a little bit of theology here. So, so I propose that the revelation of God through the person, character, and atonement of Jesus has to be the ultimate standard by which we judge everything else. That means that the Sermon on the Mount is more authoritative than the title of liberty. It also means that personal revelation through the Spirit must be read and interpreted through the lens of the full revelation of God in Jesus. So I think the record is abundantly clear that the mortal Jesus who manifests what it looks like for godliness to take on flesh, the mortal Jesus was absolute, unequivocal in his rejection of lethal violence against other humans. Now he did use lethal violence against animals and plants. I'll leave that for another uh, day. Here I'm only talking about violence against humans. I'll let the environmental ethicists figure out the other stuff. Okay, so but we're only talking about violence against humans here. I think that Jesus reveals that the character of God, when manifest in mortality, is utterly and completely nonviolent, without exception. Furthermore, given Jesus' claim and command for his followers, that the works which ye have seen me do, that shall ye also do, That standard of absolute and complete nonviolence is also the standard for the church and all Christians. So I argue that Jesus' rejection of violence is one of the most complete and unequivocal aspects of his person, character, ministry, and atonement, and thus also becomes the duty of every Christian. So if we were... I'd suggest if we were to recognize and truly adopt this Christ-centered theology and ethic, it might actually provide a solution to the challenge posed by John Krakauer that revelatory religion is inherently unstable and dangerous because we would affirm that Mormonism is not inherently unstable and dangerous on questions of violence because Jesus, who is completely nonviolent, is the final arbiter There is nothing that can trump the person of God as revealed in Jesus. So no believer, whether it's Dan Lafferty or Nephi, can authentically claim that their violence is the fullest and best manifestation of God's will. It's true, if we use violence, the atonement of God may justify us, as it does for everyone, all of us, who fall short of the glory of God. But violent actors cannot claim in this theology that God or the Spirit compelled them to lethal violence as their best or only option. So if we don't have, without the option of saying no to the Spirit, in a case like Dan Lafferty, and yes to Jesus, Mormonism could be reduced to a series of ad hoc personal decisions based on individual interpretation of what the Spirit says, or what we think the Spirit says. And therefore, the Lafferty's are justified. But I personally believe that the weight of the Mormon tradition, as read through a Christ-centered theology, suggests that no Latter-day Saint ever has the divinely granted mandate to take the life of another human being for any reason or purpose. And the divine command to choose life extends well beyond the, the sphere of war and murder to include any other practice that that degrades life. So with this, I want to close with two stories and reflect on the dilemmas of what it means to choose life in a culture of violence. So in 2014, some of you may know this story, uh, it showed up on some of the blogs. Uh, in 2014, A declassified report of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence revealed that two Latter-day Saints were involved in providing legal justification for the Bush administration's use of torture and and that they were primarily responsible for designing specific methods of enhanced interrogation or torture. One of these two men was shortly thereafter called to be a bishop, uh, but resigned a week after Uh, a week later after a public outcry. On the other side of the coin, we have the story of Alyssa Peterson. Alyssa Peterson was a devout Mormon. She was a 27-year-old Arabic language specialist uh, in the army. She was assigned to duty in 2003. This was in the middle of the Iraq war at Tal Afar prison in Iraq, where they were holding detainees. Peterson was ordered by her officers to apply enhanced interrogation techniques to the detainees. She objected to the treatment of prisoners in what they called the cage, and reportedly said that she did not know how to be two people. She couldn't be one person in the cage and another outside. Her superiors reprimanded her for showing too much empathy to the prisoners And on September fifteenth, two 2003, just 25 days after being assigned to the prison, Alyssa Peterson committed suicide, unable to to reconcile her legal and direct military orders with her moral conscience as a Latter-day Saint Christian. So I think we are left grappling, like all Christians are left grappling, with these dilemmas. We live in a world of war. We live in a world of violence. We live in a world of evil. And the question is, how do we respond? I'd suggest that a Christ-centered theology, uh, in addition to a number of revelations that I haven't uh, gotten into other things that are part of the restoration tradition, but they, they tell us exactly how we should respond, But I think the restoration tradition gives Latter-day Saints no quarter to ever take another human being's life uh, in any circumstance. Uh, and I think that's what a Christ-centered theology dictates, that we choose life in all and every circumstance. Thank you. All right, happy to have you argue with me. Yes? What about the significant contradiction of Laban? Mm-hmm. Nephi and Laban. That's pretty strong. It is very strong. It is very strong, and so um, there's a uh, and and of course with that story, I mean Nephi at first resists, and then this, I mean he says, I mean the spirit told me to do it. I mean really kind of forced him forced him to do it. It's interesting. Uh, we uh, in general we've we've neglected the, There's a very interesting passage in section 98 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now section 98 is the, uh, the section that talks about renounce war and proclaim peace, but then it goes through a lengthy passage in which it talks about when uh, Latter-day Saints are justified in using violence uh, against those who come against them. And the general rule, I won't get into the details here, but the general rule is that on the first blush, Latter-day Saints are always told to turn the other cheek, but after repeated uh, injustices, after repeated attacks, that they can be justified uh, in, in using violence. Now, I think uh, that language, it uses the word justified over and over. And I think it uses it advisedly. And I think it uses it in a Pauline sense of justification. To be justified in the scriptures, uh, especially with Pauline theology, means that the blood of Christ, the atonement of Christ, has, uh, has covered your sin, but it's still a sin. If, if, if something was not a sin, it wouldn't need to be justified. You don't have to be justified for your righteous behavior. You have to be justified for things that fall short of a celestial standard. And over and over in that section, it talks about the violence uh, being allowed but being justified. And then there's a very interesting passage... At, at the end of this, um, it's in the 30s, I forget the exactly uh, the, the verse number, but it says, this is the law that I gave unto all my ancients, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Nephi. So it's clearly, I think, I interpret it, other people have interpreted it differently, but I interpret that to say, this is the law that Nephi had, and that." That he chose because the preference in section 98 is always forbearance you're always given a greater reward if you choose not to use violence even after the third or fourth offense and but it and, and so it says this is the law I gave unto my servant Nephi uh, so, so I think that's how we read the, the Nephi and Laban case that I think Nephi, He could have chosen another way. We have lots of examples in the scriptures of uh, prophets arguing with God or or coming back. He could have chosen another way. He he, he might have prayed to God, is there some other way to do this? Um, But he obeyed the voice of the spirit and and I think he's fully justified as section 98 says. But to be justified is not to be inherently holy. So I think what Nephi did uh, is not it does not correspond with the highest ideal of, of what Jesus would reveal, or what Jesus would do in that situation. But that it doesn't mean that he goes to hell for it. He can be justified, just as the law says. So, so I, think, I think we have to read those, those passages, section 98 and 1 Nephi 4, against uh, uh, and, uh, and next to one another. Hi. Um, I don't
4: know if this was intentional or not, but listening to your presentation, it made me think of Kant's... Um, Religion within the uh, bounds of reason, except that was, in Kant's case, he, he's using rationality to stand against, um, say, the Abraham example, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you, and you're appealing to on the Mount and the immortal ministry of Christ. Um, I, I, I think the position is highly problematic if you're going to go. With Christ, then you obviously got the example of violence with the money changers, which is not legal force, but it's clearly violence you know, on one or possibly two occasions, depending on how you're reading the chronology of the Synoptic Gospels. Two, um, how do you then respond to Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, convert <coughs> to the Jesus movement, who was a Roman centurion, mm-hmm. which is a life of violence and coercion, and yet he was the one who was given direct revelation for Peter to baptize? Three, uh, Your position would seem to therefore condemn Mormons who were uh, fighting in the armed forces during World War II.
3: Great. Great objections. Terrific objections. Okay, first of all, uh, Christ in the temple. Actually, uh, if, if you want Christ to be doing violence there, you've got to make assumptions. The text does not say he uses any violence against humans. And not just lethal violence. There is The text does not say that he whipped any human being. It talks about him making a scourge. Does not say he used it against any humans. He overturned tables. Uh, I'm <laughs> hey, okay with that kind of violence. Out, he, he drove them, them out, out, but it doesn't he say. say I, I, I could I could drive you all out of here without violence, right? Um, <laughs> well, uh, and and so the, the 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 text does not actually uh, does not support. Christ using but certainly not lethal violence, which is the main thing that I'm concerned about. And actually, a strict reading of the text, uh, he's not using violence. We we assume that he is uh, because we sort of want him to, um, but but that's not what the text says. Uh, second of all, uh, Cornelius, great point. Uh, uh, Jesus uh, and, and the apostles invited all kinds of people into the early <laughs> movement: adulterers, tax collectors, which of course are like the worst. People, right? Uh, uh, I mean, uh, but I mean, all kinds of people are attracted to the Jesus movement. That's that's the point, right? Doesn't matter what your life has been like. Jesus wants to redeem you, wants you to be reconciled to God. And we know uh, from an argument from history that for the first three centuries of Christianity, um, the earliest Christians were were basically pacifists. Uh, there were a handful of Christians who were converted uh, to. Uh, to, to Christianity while they were soldiers, and this actually caused a real problem for the movement, and so we have lots of letters from bishops back and forth, what do we do with these people who are in the military? Because the clear understanding of the Christians uh, for the first three centuries is that to be a follower of Jesus means to renounce violence and to renounce any service in the military. Um, and so, were there were there a handful of Christian soldiers? Yes, um, but it was it was seen as a problem for the church, uh, and uh, uh, because the, the the default understanding was the was the Sermon on the Mount and the nonviolent teaching of Jesus. In terms of the, the contemporary church, um, I you know I'm not uh, interested in. Uh, passing judgment on anybody's uh, choice or uh, professions. Uh, I I think we all, uh, all of our professions probably fall short uh, of the glory of God. Uh, And in fact, uh, in World War II specifically, the first presidency came out with a statement in 1942 uh, uh, supporting, it's 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 an interesting statement. It talks about how the church must always be against war. But then it says that individual members of the church uh, because of their obligations as citizens, uh, are justified in, in joining the, uh, the armed forces of their respective countries, right, America, Germany, uh, wh- whatever it is. And that uh, any, any violence that, that, that they do will not be held against them morally, um, that uh, the culpability would, would go up to presumably to the, their either military or political superiors. Uh, so it, it is the longest and most um, most detailed and thoughtful statement from the First Presidency that we have on issues of war and peace. But even that, it's it's a, it's a complex document because, because it says quite clearly that the church must always be against war. Uh, so, so we have these tensions here between what does it mean to live in a fallen world, to be citizens in nation states, uh, to, to have the obligations of citizenship. Uh, what, what does that mean? So that these are always tensions that we have. Yeah, Scott.
2: Patrick, the statement uh, of Krakauer, that faith is the antithesis of reason, do you not think that is too broad, too general a statement? Oh, yeah, no, you know, it's, it's for a literary I mean, effect. You've got, you, got yeah. you have the photo of the library there, and you've you got levels from demented thinking and warped thinking to blind faith to simplistic faith. Um, and, and truthfully, for anyone who has any maturity in the knowledge of Christ's teachings, examples, commandments, if you receive some kind of revelation that tells you to do something contrary to that commandment, you have to stop and ask yourself, "What Christ did? Look at the fruit. What is the result? By their fruits you shall know them. If the fruit is is, is wicked, evil, overstepping the boundary, you know, taking life, causing harm, uh, abuse, uh, that 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 uh, uh, at least a mature thinking." Latter-day Saint ought to be able to say, I'm getting this thought that tells me to do something contrary to what Christ taught. What's the truth of that, and where's that coming from? There's got to be something, you know, and we hear the, the reverendate conference talking about personal revelation and how to distinguish it from, you know, from temptation or some other, you know, thoughts that, that creep into our minds. So, so, in your writing, uh, do you do you feel that's too broad, and therefore do you qualify it in what you're? What oh, sure. Right? I
3: mean, yeah. I mean, the, the faith is the antithesis of reason. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's, that's that's a literary device. It's a cheap shot in some ways. I mean, the the, the entire um, endeavor of theology is reasoned reflection upon faith, right? And and so so they're not necessarily the antithesis of one another. On the other hand, I mean, I, I think what you just said I, I, I agree with very much. I mean, that the, the, the um, that we look to Jesus I mean, that's, that's the whole core of my argument And that the fruits Of what we do Will, um, will essentially be testament to, to, the, uh, to the Morality and righteousness of him So actually we look at the Nephi Example and, and I don't want to throw Nephi Under the bus but surely he was a far Better person than I am um, uh, But you look at the fruits of, of His decisions And you get A thousand years of war because of that, uh, you get now Laman and Lemuel have some moral accountability in here too. But Nephi takes the sword, right? And he's uh, he, he has a kind of love affair with that sword. And he uh, the first thing that he does when when the, when the two when the family splits apart in Second Nephi chapter five, the first thing that he does is make more weapons. And you say, well, that's only really natural. They've got to defend themselves. So, right? But, but there there is created because of the dynamic that begins at that moment where, where Nephi rel- relies on the sword to solve his problem. That sets up uh, a civilizational dynamic uh, that the fruits don't turn out well for the Nephites. Um, and so, so I, I think on those grounds too, we can say, what if Nephi had found another way? What if he had found, what if he had been creative in the way that Martin Luther King talks about or that we see oftentimes in the Book of Mormon by his descendants who find creative ways not to use violence against others. And the fruits of that uh, do not lead to a kind of perpetuation the cycle of violence. And I think the the the
2: only statement of justification for violence in the scriptures is simply in defense of your family. And protecting your wives and your children. That is the only acceptable defense that, that, you know,
3: that, that the Lord justifies. Yeah, and what I'm suggesting is that the title of liberty doesn't trump the sermon on the
0: mount. So, Armin? I think in our, uh, uh, our discussions about uh, authenticity of the Book of Mormon and whether it's what it claims to be and all that, uh, we overlook the uh, Uh, of an important kind of literary issue. Uh, Even if we think of the Book of Mormon and the Bible as having been revealed just that way and uh, the translation was all correct and all (laughs) that, we still tend to overlook the fact that the Book of Mormon, even if we take it as what we claim it to be, was written by Nephites. And Nephi himself and others, uh, in writing their history, they get to say whatever they want to say (laughs) about how it happened. And they get to say whatever they want to say about the Lamanites. So we don't have to agree with Nephi to to say that, uh, you know, again, even taking the Book of Mormon as a divinely revealed document, that doesn't do away with the issue that we're still dealing there with human beings who wrote their record and they get to say whatever they want to say in the record. And when I come to something like the Nephi and Laman issue, I resort to that interpretation. You know, I might say to myself, well, Nephi, that may be what you thought, but, and and Joseph Smith was right. And, translating it that way so it's nothing against the translation Uh, but we are still entitled to pass judgment on Nephi and you did that a few minutes ago uh, on on the overall results of his decision but see I'm making the point that uh, we don't even have to believe that he was correct in believing that the Lord told him to do that
3: yeah, I mean, and of course that's a retrospective account uh, that, that's written. Um, lots of scholars have, have written how I mean, uh, especially the narrative in First Nephi is clearly constructed to, to justify Nephi's kingship uh, and, and and Nephi's uh, uh, position as the ruler over, over his brothers. And and again, I don't I I, I think we can absolutely accept the text uh, exactly as it is and still uh, have the ability to critique. Nephi, because uh, for, for me, I mean the, the core of my argument is that Nephi, Captain Moroni, any of these people, they're not the moral North Star for us. They're not the theological North Star Jesus is. right? And so, so their morality, their ethic, their experience, all of that has to be read through Jesus, not the other way around. We don't read, read Jesus through Captain Moroni. We read Captain Moroni through Jesus. That's that's what I'm suggesting. Well,
2: apparently the third Nephi line is Jesus or someone in the Godhead who's the author of a, yeah. a terrible violence, so seems an incongruous prelude to the, the advent of the Prince of Peace who love those kids. How do you deal with that?
3: Yeah, so so this this is where I start to do some um, uh, theological uh, uh, tap dancing here. So uh, and, and I'm still working this out, and my co-author isn't even sure that he agrees with me on this, but, uh, but this is the way I'm working it out, is that we have, we have lots of examples in the scriptures, and I think 3 Nephi 9 is, is the key one that we have to wrestle with. Because the divine violence in the Bible, Mormons always have an out of saying, like, translated correctly, right? We, any parts that we don't like about the Bible, we just say they weren't translated right? but, um, uh, Okay, but the Book of Mormon is a little harder for us, right? So if, if we assume, like Harmon says, that it's translated correctly, right? And that's, I mean, God and whoever, whether that's father, son, whoever, uh, owns that violence, right? It says, I buried Nephi Ha, I burned Zarahemla. I, 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 right? God owns that violence. So I think we have to take that passage very seriously. What I would argue, and my argument is that Jesus is the revelation of God in the flesh. So Jesus is the standard by which humans must live their lives in mortality given that we live behind the veil, right? Or on this side of the veil. God Because he has infinite perspective, knowledge, and the power to resurrect, God can, with a moral calculus that goes beyond my ability to comprehend, God can employ violence. He has the right to do that, right? I do not have omniscience. I do not have the ability to bring back that which I destroy, and so, therefore, God has not given me, as a mortal human being, the right to destroy and to kill, right? When I become a god, do I get that right? Sure, I mean, I can, I can be like God, you know. But, but so, so I think there's a different ethic for God than there is for human beings. Yes. I, I think God can do things that, that we can't and, um, be, because uh, he has a different perspective. But I think this is the key, that Jesus... When God is in the flesh here, Jesus reveals what it what it looks like to be a perfect human, and Jesus is never violent. He's he not <laughs> violent in the temple. Read the text, all right? And he's definitely not lethally not, violent.
4: Is that
3: not a violent we, uh, there's there's all kinds of ways of uh, nonviolent persuasion, right? And power, <laughs> the exercise of power. Even if you want to, say, let's say that he is violent. Okay, let's say he whips somebody on the back and forced them out. It's still stopping short of lethal violence. The co- the, the co- you made
4: a categorical of violence. You didn't say lethal
3: violence. Well, actually, in my presentation, so the, the, the core of my argument is about lethal violence. I would argue that he's utterly nonviolent, that he does not use even non lethal violence. And, and I think that text, I, I, apparent, I, I read it differently than you do. Uh, and, uh, but but the, the argument about lethal violence holds one way or the other. So,
1: Morris? Patrick, I'm probably in the minority here that's spoken out that I actually agree with you. (laughs) So I'm not gonna argue with you. I'm just gonna give you an example of something I've seen recently in a state conference that we had where our state president took as his text the passage in the Old Testament. I'm not an Old Testament scholar. I think Saul was involved, but as I recall, because I read it right afterwards, essentially that God is supposed to have told the Israelites, or the good guys, to murder everybody that was their enemies, and this included uh, widows, old women, and children, infants, and, and of course all their animals as well. And apparently, if I'm re- remembering correctly, Saul or whoever it was didn't do it exactly. He didn't kill everybody, and he, some, finally the Lord said, well, well, kill the guy, and he killed him. And the point of the talk by the state president was obedience is primary, and we need to obey when God tells us, even if it seems irrational. And to me, that is as insidious a position as, as we can do. And do you see a danger? And just to say one more thing, one of the women who attended that thing, who I liked very much, later posted on Facebook, I'm so excited to have heard that talk. And I now know that obedience is the first principle of the gospel. And I'm thinking, whoa, wait, it is not to love the first principle of the gospel? Do you see a, a, a problem with the, and there's been no doubt an increased emphasis on obedience uh, from, from speech, talks that have been given, not just by state presidents, but by people that are even higher than they.
3: Yeah, so, so I don't, um, it, in, in the application of it, I, I see a lot of challenges, but actually in, in the principle of it, I, I don't see a conflict. Because I, I would actually say that um, I think it is the duty and the burden of the Christian to be absolutely obedient to the call of Christ. Uh, I think that's what, that's what radical discipleship is. I, I think it, he says, come follow me, and we follow him. Uh, we call ourselves Christians. We say we're the church of Jesus Christ, so he is the one that we follow. So I actually don't have a problem with the principle of, of radical obedience to the call of Christ. It's not a I don't live up to that, but, but in, um, in my theology, and at least theoretically, uh, that's where I believe. So, so I, I don't and, – and that would include radical obedience to the law of love. Right, which, which right. he says is the prime command. But commander. the problem
1: is that most of us don't speak directly with Christ, and, exactly. those who, and those who think they do are like Dan Lafferty. Right, and so that's why I think Christ has
3: revealed to us, we have everything we need to know, basically, mm-hmm. uh, through the Gospels uh, uh, and, and through the Restoration text, we have supplements to that of what God looks like when he's in the flesh. That's what, that's what the gospel is. It's the good news. Of this is what it means. When God comes to earth, this is what it looks like. And this is what you're supposed to follow, if you right. call yourself a Christian. Can I ask a question
0: yeah? about that? Bring it, I like the question about World War II. Well, bring it to our day. If somebody comes and attacks me and tries to rape me, I'm not going to wait a few times for attacks. I'm going to fight back as hard as I can, with as much violence as I can, up to killing the person, if that's what I need to do to save my life. So... To me, that's justifiable violence. Even though you're saying Christ would never do anything like that, but
3: I would. So how do? You're exactly right, and the, and the language he uses is, is exactly the language that the scripture uses. Section ninety-eight. It says it would be justified, right? Now that's not what Christ did. This is hard. I
0: can't think of a creative way to get out of it except why? right. Exactly, and,
3: and so this 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 is this is the hard pill of Christian discipleship, <laughs> is that. This is what Jesus did, right? Jesus didn't fight back. Jesus died, right? And he died horribly, and he died violently. That's what he did when people came and attacked him, right? And and he told his followers explicitly that that's what he expected of them, to follow him to the cross. We make that a metaphor, and, and so it wasn't a metaphor for him. And it wasn't a metaphor for Peter, right? Uh, and for many, many other early Christians who were martyred because of their faith. And so I think this is what Jesus asks of us to do. But then in section 98, he tells us that we are justified when we do otherwise. Because of his love, right? He justifies us. This is what the atonement does, is it justifies behaviors that are not celestial because we're... because. Of course we want to defend ourselves, our family. That is the natural thing to do. This is not natural. This is not natural at all. This is what Jesus did. So so I think you're exactly right. And that is exactly what section 98 says, that you can and will be justified for defending yourself, your family, and so forth. It does say that the first time you're supposed to turn the other cheek, right? That's awfully hard, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but, but, but that's it. The atonement justifies even 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 lethal violence, so it's it's, it's exactly the law. I think it's easier to understand that
2: in the context of your own self and Mm self-preservation. It is far more difficult for me to understand in the context of, let's use Jesus as the example, because you're going there, his mother Mary. Mm -hmm. Had had she been physically attacked, is it your opinion that he would have stood by that he would not have protected her.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think he would have thrown himself in front of the attacker. I'm sure he would have. Right. And and so but I mean of it, course of course that's just he would just throw himself in front of it and
2: do nothing? <laughs> uh, and then let and let fall and then let Mary be the next to fall? I don't see that. That's what he did on the cross. Mm-hmm. I mean
3: I Joyce you, you wanted to get in the so uh, i am say that's the
4: he goes through the scriptures, forbidding conflict or of a great and universal nature, while those that forbid conflicts all refer to exceptional cases. In all-important, making wars distinguish between general principles, which always apply, no conflict, Christ, but the special instances and exceptions, which are dictated by expediency, and never exactly the same twice. It is dangerous of fools to lay down rules based on inference from special cases and find conflict. So, I think it's different. Mm -hmm. Even though I think, yes, if someone attacked me, maybe it wouldn't be right to attack that. You can't make a judgment ahead of time.
3: Right. Well, I mean, I I think, you know, this is... hard stuff. I mean, it's, this is exactly what section 98 says. It, it is about defending your friends and your families when they are attacked. That's exactly what it's about. And so it tells us explicitly what we're supposed to do. The first time we receive it, we absorb it, we forbear, uh, and then it talks about after that, uh, if you choose to, you can you can respond with violence and you will be justified in doing so. Right? Um, the entire um, just war tradition in Christianity, which I think is, is a, um, if you're not familiar with it, the just war tradition is a set of principles that have been developed over the centuries that, are, that were meant to restrain violence, right? Rather than just going to you know to war anytime you wanted, it was a set of principles that were supposed to be applied um, that had to be met before a, a nation or a kingdom or something like that could go to war. And the origins of just war theory <clears throat> go back to St. Augustine, uh, the, the early Christian father, who, this is exactly his argument. He said, he said, when I am attacked, the gospel is very clear that, that I should not resist, that I should turn the other cheek, and I should be willing to lay down my life ra- rather than take the life of another. But, he said, when a person I love is attacked, then the gospel, he believed that the gospel law of love said that I should be willing to, to do everything I can in order to protect the other person, right? And, and so from that is the, is the roots of the, uh, the just war theory. Uh, Augustine went on to say that, uh, so, so let's say somebody's attacking me, uh, wants to kill me, and, and you come in to defend me out of love, right? Which is the Christian imperative. And the only way to stop this guy is to kill him. Uh, and so you stop him from killing me by killing him instead. And Augustine said that's justified. And that is itself an act of love because you're preventing him from doing a grave sin. Through your love for, by stopping him from murdering me, you are showing love for his soul. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, that, that, the, 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 the there's 1,700 years of Christian teaching based on that, and 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 rigorous and and informed and, and brilliant Christian teaching on just war theory. So, uh, but but I think it, uh, Jesus's standard is even stricter than that. So so again, we could, we can argue about these things, but, but this is uh, I, I think I think this is the the gospel that, that Jesus leads us with. So,
1: Patrick, thank you so much. Yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dialogue podcast in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.